0: if anyone here has ever faced a time where you've been called crazy or someone thought you were crazy because of something that you believed in or something that you felt you had to do. Think of maybe a silly example off the top. I remember thinking when I would go grocery shopping with my mom when I was a kid and she would smell cantaloupe. There's nothing that says crazy like smelling fruit in public. And so I I remember thinking, Mom, just pick it and hope for the best. Now, what I didn't know is I learned to love cantaloupe. I know a lot of people don't like cantaloupe. This is a really controversial, uh, really, I'm on the edge here on this illustration. But... I think the reason so many people don't like cantaloupe is not enough people smell the cantaloupe. Because when cantaloupe is either uh, too ripe or not ripe enough, it's terrible. I'll admit it. But when it's perfect, it's, it's great. I'm not saying it's the best fruit in the world, but it is underrated. But I remember thinking, Mom, you're crazy. And she'd say, no, this is how you tell. This is how you know. Now, obviously, that's a silly example. But I'm sure we can all think of times, many of us in our own lives, but many of us could think of other people that have faced a, a time in their life where they, they knew that they had to do something. They knew they believed in something, yet other people called them crazy or said, at least at minimum, that's a bad idea, what you're about to do. I think of those who go overseas to do uh, missionary work, to dedicate their lives. They give up everything to go to share the gospel, to show and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Right, And many who have friends and even family members who would say why what are you doing stay here right live comfortably you can you can share the gospel here don't go into this uh, open doorway of disease and danger and even death potentially as you can think of stories in your li- life where maybe somebody uh, you you can think of that example even someone discouraging think of john g payton Lived a long time ago, he was a missionary and he said he was a pastor for 10 years and he said, I'm going to go to this area, the New Hebrides, and I'm going to share the gospel with the people there, many of which are cannibals. And his whole church, every single person said, you are crazy, don't do that. We'll get back to him in a little bit. But this morning as we continue our series in the book of Acts, we're going to be seeing the end of the third missionary journey, where the apostle Paul faces a similar situation. Even his friends around him are saying, Paul, I think you're kind of crazy. What are you doing? He's so firm in his convictions that he needs to go to Jerusalem, yet his friends around him say, That's a bad idea. We know things are going to be bad for you. And so this wasn't new for Paul. If you've been tracking with us through the book of Acts, or if you know the story of Paul, He had it all. He was educated. He was successful. He was well-respected. But he gave it all up because he had an encounter with Christ. He spent his life prior to his encounter with Christ attacking the church. But this switch flipped, and he then devoted his life to the church. And so he's already used to being ridiculed and called crazy but he's already weighed out the cost of discipleship. He's weighed out the cost of discipleship. Now this is an important thing to consider this morning, no matter who you are here. We need to be able to answer the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Even if you're not a Christian, I hope you have a clear picture of what it means to be a Christian. And to answer that question, you need to ask the question, what is the cost of discipleship? And so Paul knows in this scene that we look at that going to Jerusalem will mean imprisonment and possibly even death. His friends tell him not to go. They're afraid on his behalf, but he is confident. He has counted the cost. And maybe you're sitting here thinking now, even just from that little teaser, hey, Paul does sound a little bit crazy. Well, let's explore that. Because what I want to focus on in this Easter Sunday morning where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ is where did this hope come from that Paul had? As he counts the cost of discipleship, where does that hope come from? And So that's our big idea this morning. Our big idea is this. The cost of following Christ is high, but we can be filled with hope rather than Fear. The cost of following Christ is high, but we can be filled with hope rather than fear. That's what we're going to be exploring this morning. So I hope you gain an appreciation and an understanding of how we apply the good news of the gospel, how we apply the good news of Jesus' resurrection and how it gives us hope, just like it was able to give Paul hope. And so I'm going to read our passage this morning. It's, again, in the book of Acts. Uh, We preach through books here and so we're already on chapter 21 and so we're going to be doing the first 16 verses of chapter 21 and I ask that you stick with me there's a bit of an itinerary we get at the beginning with some uh, kind of crazy names of places but we're going to get through it and then we'll dig in deep let's read God's word and when we had parted from them and set sail we came by a straight course to cause and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Padaraa and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on, on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey and they all with wives and children accompanying us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound, it, uh, and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is God's word. And so one of the first things we notice, uh, I don't think it's incidental, it's not the driving force as we're going to get to the cost of discipleship, but But an interesting piece that we see through this whole thing in our first point this morning is the beauty of friendship, the beauty of friendship. And we see this uh, exemplified in a few different ways. We get this itinerary, we get this day-by-day kind of, this is typical Luke, the guy who wrote Acts to just write, here's where we were, then we went here, then we stayed for two days, then we went here, then we stayed for a couple days. That's the way Luke seems to write. But we see throughout every place he goes the beauty of Christian friendship. So we're going to consider friends that care, friends that pray, and friends that trust God. So first, friends that care. How do they care for Paul and his companions? Well, first, they practice hospitality. We see hospitality. The church has grown now. And everywhere they stop, people are ready to host them. Some of these people are known. Others are likely unknown. But they have this bond of Christian, family and friendship where wherever they go there are people ready to host them we see again some people we recognize like philip we left him like 10 chapters ago right this is 20 years later but philip has made it to caesarea this is philip who shared the gospel with the ethiopian eunuch but others that that likely this was the first time that they had met but we see that the gospel is the ultimate unifier The gospel reaches beyond race, gender, and status. Paul understands this from his own experience. When he became a Christian, when he had that encounter with Christ, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians, to go and arrest people. Yet he has this encounter, and so shortly after, when he gets to Damascus, they call him brother. They welcome him into the family. He understands Christian hospitality on a level beyond what many of us could even fathom. He was on his way to arrest people, and yet they called him brother because the gospel was the ultimate unifier. Paul and the early church got this. They knew that we are all sinners desperately in need of a savior. And after that encounter with Christ... We become a family, a family adopted by the Father. And so we see friendship, we see hospitality demonstrated in a few verses. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. We greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next verse, then we talk about Philip. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea when we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. At the very end, verse 16, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. The Bible has a lot to say about hospitality, and we're not going to get into it all this morning. But what we do need to know is part of what it means to be a Christian is to show hospitality, It is an act of love by Christians, for Christians, and for non-Christians. There's really no negotiating. If we read the New Testament, we see hospitality being over and over. It's a qualification for an elder to be hospitable. And Rosaria Butterfield has this excellent book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. If you are interested in the idea of—not even if you're interested. If you're a Christian, read this book. The gospel comes with a house key. She says this. She defines radically ordinary hospitality as this. Radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. It brings glory to God, serves others, and lives out the gospel in word and deed. So that's the first way that we see the beauty of Christian friendship in our passage. Friends that care. And friends that care through showing hospitality. Next we see friends that care. But how do they care? They care by expressing concern. Friends that care. Friends that express concern. Verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there. Hey, another hospitality. For seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And also verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This can be a confusing passage for a couple of reasons. But we see that the friends of Paul, those that have been traveling with him, that know him well, and others that he was just stopping in with, they expressed concern. So this can be a confusing passage because we can land in a few places here. We could say, well, they've prophesied that that bad things are going to happen to Paul, yet Paul decides, I'm going anyway. And so we could land a few places. We could say, are these false prophecies? Right? Paul says that he must go to Jerusalem, Acts 20, 22, what we looked at last week. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. So Paul says, I'm going. And so were these prophecies false? That's one conclusion we could come to. The other conclusion, on the flip side, if we swing the pendulum, was Paul wrong? Was he crazy? Was he mad? Was he disobedient? And so to answer each of those questions, again, we could spend a lot of time digging in here, but were the prophecies wrong? I would say no. Luke seems to be pretty clear. These prophecies are are through the Spirit, from the Spirit. He seems to give us no doubt, and so does that... Move us to, well, was Paul wrong? Well, I would also say no. Right, we don't have to swing this pendulum one way or the other. Let's try to take the puzzle pieces we have and put them together. We see that he is led by the Spirit as well, constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So how do these puzzle pieces fit together? Well, what it seems to be is that his friends conclude from accurate prophecies saying things are going to be bad in jerusalem things are going to go rough you're going to be imprisoned and then they take that information and say you shouldn't go because they care about their friend they care about their friend but paul knows he must go paul knows he must go so these are true predictions we see that these things come true spoiler alert but their discouragement for him to go comes from their own doing. Right? They are, with Luke included, Luke lumps himself in here, says, we're having trouble seeing God's plan through this. Seems like it'd be better for you to just hunker down, not go to Jerusalem. But out of that fear, out of that expressive concern, they've raised their voice, they've, they've expressed their concern we see another beautiful component of friendship. So we've seen friends that care and now also friends that pray. Friends that pray. Last week, we saw that the Ephesian elders, when they left, or when Paul was leaving, they prayed for Paul. And in Tyre, again, we see in verse five and six, when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. And so these Christians, when they had concluded that what Paul was about to face was a potentially a rough road, what did they do? Well, they defaulted to prayer. That was their reaction, that was their response. Because prayer for one another is a demonstration of love. And Acts, this whole book, is a beautiful example of what that means. Every time pretty much anything happens, the church defaults to prayer. The early church was a praying people. This was their knee-jerk reaction. right? If I threw a ball at you, you're going to have a reaction, hopefully. right? You're either going to catch it or you're going to duck. Those are good reactions. Those are good reactions. Uh, things. And if you just get hit, I don't know what to say. The illustration falls apart. But your reaction should be to either catch it or duck. Our reaction to every circumstance in our life as Christians should be to pray. I remember, this is just one example, but I remember being so encouraged by it. And maybe this shouldn't have been such a radical thing for me to experience. But when I was taking a course at Heritage College and Seminary, One of our professors was teaching a class, and all of a sudden everybody's phone went off with an amber alert. An amber alert went off. And immediately he stopped and he prayed for that situation. It was his just his reaction. There was no question like, oh maybe, I don't know, should we? Boom. That's what he did. He knew there was nothing else he could do, but that was also the best thing that he could do was to stop and pray. And so HGC, we need to be a church that, that trains that muscle to pray when the going is smooth, pray when the going gets tough. When we don't know what else to do, pray. When we do think we have other things we should do, pray. We need to be a church that prays for one another. And so commit to that. Let's, let's become a church that has that knee-jerk reaction to pray because friends pray for one another. And so one thing uh, to tease out that we want to do is have uh, a directory with people's pictures in it of the members here at this church so that we each can commit to praying through that every week. Imagine how uh, wonderful an example that would be as a church that we are praying for one another. That's a demonstration of, of being a family. That is a demonstration of being friends. So friends care through showing hospitality, through expressing concern and friends pray. And finally, We see that friends, the beauty of Christian friendship is demonstrated when friends trust God. In verse 14, Luke comes to this conclusion. And since he, Paul, would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Lord, let your will be done. We hand it over to you. Their friendship, their relationship was rooted in a deep, deep trust of God. Where does that trust come from? I mean, their trust really comes experientially. Time and time again, God works, not just in spite of, but sometimes directly through seemingly bad circumstances. If you've been following with us through the book of Acts, you will see that. Over lunch today, talk with your family or friends or in your community groups or discipleship groups. Talk about through the book of Acts, or even the whole Bible, where you've seen this, where has God worked through seemingly bad situations? I think you'll lose count how many times you'll see God's faithfulness through these situations. And so these early Christians knew, without a doubt, God could be trusted. God could be trusted. God makes promises, and God keeps promises. We're celebrating one of those promises this morning. Right? Think all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, really. In the garden, God makes a promise. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, as soon as sin enters the world, he makes a promise that sin would be defeated. Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right from the beginning, God makes a promise that the things are going to turn around. That God would have a way to defeat evil. The head of the serpent would be bruised and crushed. But it would come at a cost. It would come at a cost. And we considered this cost on Friday night. For Good Friday. We considered the weight of the cross. We considered that God, in his mercy, looked to humanity. Adam and Eve, everyone that lived since, including us, as sinners. We've rebelled against God, but in his mercy, he made a way. He sent Jesus to come. On Friday night, we considered the need for the cross. We are sinners. We considered the way to the cross. Jesus would come, live a perfect life, a sinless life, yet pay the penalty that we all deserve the penalty that we all deserve his heel would be bruised he bore the weight of sin he died a, a torturous death on a cross but he did that so that we could be made right with god he did that so that his righteousness could be credited to us so our our past would change and then he would in turn in this crazy exchange take our sin on his shoulders That's the beauty of the gospel. But we see and we celebrate this morning that Jesus didn't stay dead. We see God's wrath was satisfied when Jesus rose from the dead. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Jesus rose from the dead. And so by responding to that, by believing that that God's wrath was satisfied, by believing that the penalty of sin was paid for, we could be made right with God. And so the whole Old Testament we could kind of categorize as promises made and the New Testament we could categorize as promises kept. And the early church understood this. Just like we need to train that knee-jerk reaction to pray, we need to train our knee-jerk reaction to trust God. And we need his help in this. We need to know him more, we need to know him more through his word and see the promises that he's made. Back from Genesis all the way through, the promises that he's made and the promises that he's kept because he cares for his children. Matthew six thirty three, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We need to trust that God is sovereign and in control. Seek first the kingdom of God. And so friends care, friends pray, and friends trust God. And they trust God because they understand what it means to follow Jesus. They understand the cost of discipleship. And so we've seen the beauty of friendship. Now our next point, the cost of discipleship. Paul and his friends, they demonstrate the need to trust God even when, and Maybe especially when it's hardest. And Paul explains that in verse 13. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul wasn't on a a death mission. He wasn't seeking out an opportunity to die, but he understood the cost of discipleship. He and we all have no proof text to see that following Jesus guarantees smooth sailing, a peachy life. He is following Jesus. For him, almost literally, it's it's almost impossible to ignore the parallels between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' own journey to Jerusalem. And for Jesus, he made clear what would happen to him. When he got there, Luke eighteen, thirty-one and 32. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered there over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit on. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Peter, one of Jesus' friends and followers, even tried to convince him to avoid his suffering, to get out of this predicament. Just like Paul's friends said, Paul, pump the brakes, man. You're kind of being crazy. Peter says the same thing to Jesus, but praise God that Jesus did go to the cross for us. And right after Jesus says that to Peter, that he, he must go, He gives us this bold and even terrifying statement about what it means to be a Christian. Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We likely know that verse, but do we really think about what that means, the cost of discipleship? For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Christianity is not about just trying to be good. This is a full handover. Jesus' own illustration is taking up a cross. That is a a very bold illustration. saying, take up this torture device and follow me. To be a Christian, to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, means going wherever God would have you go, changing whatever God would have you change. Him I love is called Jesus I my cross have taken. Considering that, that metaphor of taking up a cross, in the first verse alone you should read the whole thing, but the first verse says, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought, or hoped, or known, yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all, not some, all to leave and follow thee. And you may be sitting here thinking, Aaron, man, this is a terrible sales pitch. I'll tell you, I'm not selling anything. I'm not selling anything. But it would be unloving for me to tell you anything other than what Jesus says himself about what it means to follow him. The cost is high. But I tell you this, the reward is so much higher. God and heaven are still my own. Paul got this. And his friends, they they talked to him. They cared about him. They prayed with him and for him. They understood and they trusted God. And they understood the cost of discipleship. So God may be calling you to walk into the fire like Paul. But whether it looks as dramatic and drastic as Paul, no matter what, if you are a Christian, you are called to take up your cross and follow him. Non-negotiable. And so how do we reconcile with this? We can be filled with fear in this moment. When we consider that, I say this, uh, not from a high horse here. I say this as a fellow pilgrim. How can we say our big idea with confidence? Our big idea. The cost of following Christ is high. But we can be filled with hope rather than fear. How do we say that? How do we make sense of this? How did Paul make sense of this? Well, let's consider Paul himself. We're going to look at a short section from the book of Ephesians. book that he wrote to the Ephesians near the end of his life when he was in prison. And we're going to see a few things about that hope, that unshakable hope that he has, a past hope, a present hope, and a future hope that quenches fear. So let's look to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Paul writes this. And you were dead in the trespasses For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is endless hope there. But let's look at it in in three categories, a past hope, a present hope, and a future hope. First, past hope. Now, before we get too far into that, you look at those first three verses. Things are pretty bad news. Pretty bad news. We were dead in our sin. That is strong language. That is not we needed to get our act together. That is we were spiritually dead in our sin. We were spiritually dead in our sin. But then verse 4, but God... Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has multiple sermons that hinge on just those two words, but God. There was absolutely no hope, but God. I was afraid, but God. I didn't know what the future would hold, but God. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Things were falling apart. We had absolutely no hope but God. It was grace alone that made us alive. Not our merit, not our effort. was God the victory is sealed Jesus died and rose again Paul's hope was anchored in this work that Jesus had done on the cross this is a past hope the last enemy to be destroyed is death and so death where is your sting Jesus had conquered death the work is done it's very real and very final And so this morning, I would ask, where are you in this passage? Are you stuck in those first three verses? Because that's a hopeless place to be. Are you stuck dead in your trespasses and sins? Or have you made it to verse four? Have you considered? Won't ever fail. So even when it's hard to see, God is working for good. It's you may be here this morning, you may be right in the trenches. You may say, the world is caving in around me. I don't even need multiple prophecies. The future looks bleak. Things feel uncertain. But rest in the present hope that God is working for your good and for his glory. rest in that present hope god has solved the biggest problem in the world sin has been defeated christ is risen the implications of this are endless so stop looking to your work to your relationships to gurus or self-help books think of sin being like unrelenting waves in the ocean those things your work relationships gurus self-help books those are like a little paper origami boat that you made getting tossed in the waves put your hope in the gospel the ocean liner that is unmoved by these unrelenting waves the gospel gives us an unmoved present hope and what about the future what about our future hope This is what Paul was absolutely anchored in. How could he look to an uncertain, a seemingly uncertain future and have hope? Because unknown futures are scary. But for Paul, the future, really in its finality in the end, wasn't unknown. We can have with Paul an unshakable hope because the future is certain. Ephesians 2 Again, it says, by grace you have been saved, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We have a taste of this new life to come by our new life in Christ. We can be made spiritually alive in this age and given renewed physical bodies when Christ returns. This is a big and bold promise. Right? We can get hung up there. But Jesus rose from the dead. We can rest in that hope. Romans eight eleven says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's a future hope. Christ is risen. The tomb was empty. Multiple eyewitness accounts. Hundreds of eyewitnesses. And so this demands a response. This demands an encounter. And this response is costly. I'm telling you that. Either way. The response is costly. Either way. At the beginning, I talked about John G. Payton. That missionary went to unknown territory He knew that there was unreached people. They needed to hear the gospel. He was a pastor for 10 years. And things were were booming. It's not like he was a failed pastor. Things were really being successful. And every single person in his church said, John, my man, don't go. These people don't know the gospel, but they are cannibals. And in one instance, an elderly man in the church, well, first of all, the whole church tried to pay him more to stay. They tried to say, is it a money thing? We'll pay you. Stick around. This is too dangerous. And this one elderly man stood up and yelled out, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And listen to John here. This is someone who understands the cost of discipleship. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And Peyton didn't play. That is a shocking statement, but he understood the cost of discipleship. He understood a future hope. He said, sure, things seem uncertain, but you know what's certain? I'm going to die, but I'm anchored in this hope because I have a risen Redeemer. My resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. He could say with Paul what we looked at last week, what we said maybe was Paul's a bumper sticker verse, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He could say with Paul in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then looking down at verse 23 I am hard pressed between the two my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better John Peyton Paul these guys got the cost of discipleship was enormously high enormously high but they rested in the hope of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that he had died paid the penalty for sin and he rose from the grave that's crazy but they rested in that hope. They knew the cost was enormously high, but they knew it wasn't as costly as the price of non-discipleship. They knew that following Jesus means giving up everything, but it gives you an unshakable hope, an unshakable hope, and an unshakable joy. We're gonna close our service by singing a song, Christ our hope in life and death. Christ our hope in life and death. There's a lot of words that come quickly in this song. but It's a great, rich song that considers our past, present, and future hope that we have in our risen Savior. The song is formatted in, uh, it's based on the Heidelberg Catechism, but it's, it's formatted in a question and answer format. Now, you sing the whole thing. You don't just do the questions or the answers. But I want to just read out the three verses as we consider what that means. That past hope present hope, and future hope. So The words should be up on the screen, yeah. So, the question, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand, what comes apart from his command, and what will keep us to the end, the love of Christ in which we stand? Talk about a past hope. Now, what about a present hope? What truth can calm the troubled soul? Well, God is good. God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? That's a present hope. What about a future hope? Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. And we will rise to meet the Lord. And sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. That is a past, a present, and a future hope. That was Paul's past, present, and future hope. That was John Payton's past, present, and future hope. And that can be our past, present, and future hope. And so Jesus says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Our risen Lord Jesus says, follow me. So let's respond with singing. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us. We cannot on our own merit do anything. It is by grace that we can be made right with you. Thank you for the gift of your son. God, we thank you for the gift of the church, for the gift of friendship and the beauty of Christian friendship, for friends that care, for friends that pray, for friends that trust you, for friends that understand the cost of discipleship. God, help us to understand what it means to take up our cross and follow you, whether that means we need to walk across our living room or our backyard or over an ocean, If we need to cross an ocean to share the gospel of God. We want to understand the cost of following you. And God, that cost is high. Make us aware of the cost, but help us in understanding our past, present, and future hope in your son's death and resurrection that we can with confidence say that Our hope in life and death is Christ alone, Christ alone. We thank you for the gift of your son that we can celebrate this morning that he has risen from the grave. We don't have to be left twiddling our thumbs or scratching our chins. We can say with confidence that Jesus is risen from the grave and our hope is in him and his finished work on the cross. It's in his name that we pray, the name of Jesus, amen.